This morning, we encounter one of the more famous stories in Judges. It's a story of a triumph of 300 men led by Gideon, who we met last week, triumphing over the great Midianite army. Like the last couple weeks, I'll tell the story and we will then consider what it has to teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ and the life of faith. We'll see at least three things. First, God removes our reasons for boasting. If you're taking notes, the first thing we'll see, God removes our reasons for boasting. Second, we will see that God builds our faith in him. God builds our faith in him. And the third and final thing we'll see is that God triumphs over his enemies through us. First, God removes our reasons for boasting. Second, God builds our faith. And third, God triumphs through us. The title of this sermon is Gideon's Gospel. Our story begins in Judges chapter 7. Look with me now, verse 1. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon. Remember really quickly that nickname Jerubal is significant. Gideon, the idol smasher, the one who tears down the altar of Baal. So Gideon, the one who tears down the altar of Baal and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. Gideon and his army are ready to go in verse one. They rose early in the morning and took their station just south of the valley in which the Midianites are encamped. They are ready to fight, but they are actually not quite ready to fight. The Lord wants to make a couple of adjustments to his army before they go into battle. These adjustments are going to be odd. He's going to make two reductions to an already outnumbered fighting force. Let's see the first reduction in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Now, we'll soon learn that there's a theological reason for these reductions, but there is a practical consideration, specifically with this first reduction, that often when you hear this story taught, this gets glossed over really quickly. It's not hard to imagine that those who are afraid of the fight should not go into the fight because attitudes are contagious. Fear is contagious. Faith is contagious. My question for us this morning as we work through this story is what is spreading among us? So a smaller faith-filled army makes some sense until you consider how much smaller. It's not just a few hundred guys who are a little nervous that leave. It's 22,000 men who turn back. That changes things. But God has yet another reduction. Look with me in verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, he shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. 
But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. Uh, This one seems odd. Go down to the river and everyone who bends over to drink water, put over here, and everyone who like laps the water up like a dog, put them in another camp. The 300 men who put their hands to their mouth and lap the water like a dog, they're your fighting force. (laughs) Now, whenever I read some of these texts, I like to read a range of commentaries, just different traditions, different people, and I always got to go back to the church fathers. One of the things I love about the early church is they were looking for symbolic meaning everywhere. And I just was laughing at some of the commentary on this. It's like, he wanted 300 good boys, you know. Laving the water. Who's a good dog for the Lord, right? I don't know that we would um, necessarily commend that. But whatever God's doing, he's whittling the army down to some 300 men. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who laughed, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. A fighting force of 32,000, already outnumbered, has been reduced to 300. Now, the text does not tell us that Gideon is nervous, but we are allowed to use a little bit of common sense. In fact, it's encouraged when you read the Bible. It's a safe assumption. The Lord God encourages Gideon before he has time to despair, however. He tells Gideon that if he's nervous, If you're anxious about this, you should take your servant Pura, go down to the enemy's camp and listen. Trust me, you will like it. So they go because apparently they need some encouragement when facing thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of warriors with 300 good men. But when they first arrive, encouragement is not what they find. Look with me in verse 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Notice the repetition of terms in this verse. Like locusts in abundance, without number, like sand on the seashore in abundance. But looks can be deceiving. For it's not what Gideon sees that is meant to encourage him. But it's what Gideon is about to hear that encourages him. Look with me in verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down. So the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So imagine with me for just a moment, Gideon and his servant go down to the enemy's camp. And when they get there, they are just in awe of the scale. All the people that they have to defeat they got to be getting a bit nervous. But it just so happens in the Lord's providential plan that they would get there and they would hear a conversation between two guys. One of them is telling his buddy about his dream. I, I had a dream, this bizarre dream that a loaf of bread 
came tumbling down the mountain. And this loaf of bread turns the tent upside down and destroys all of us. What could this dream mean? And his friend interprets this dream for him. Oh, perhaps the legend of Gideon has already spread, which is funny, right? Because if you remember Gideon's calling, why does he tell the Lord that surely it's not him? Because he's the least of his family, in a family that's the least of his tribe. So why are you calling me? I'm a nobody. But now this nobody is the great fear of the Midianite army. Oh, this is the sword of the Lord in the hand of Gideon the great, Gideon the mighty. He's leading an army, and surely your dream means that the Lord God is with him. Surely we are in great trouble. Oh, Gideon falls on his face, and he worships God. He goes back to the camp and tells his soldiers that the Lord has given Midian into their hands. He then devises a plan, a plan that actually struck me fresh when I read this text for this sermon. Gideon's going to use some smoke and mirrors. He does not let the promise of God uh, make him less strategic. He does not let the promise of God make him work less. In fact, he goes and he devises a plan that's pretty brilliant. He divides the 300 into three groups so that not a whole lot of people can seem like a whole lot of people. You guys are going to come on this side. You guys are going to come on this side. And and you guys are going to come on this side. And what you're going to have is in one hand, you're going to have a torch with a a cover over it, a jar over it. And in the other hand, you're going to have a trumpet over it. And what we're going to do is when the night watch is changing, I've picked up on this in my scouting. He says, when the night watch is changing, we're going to surround them at each of these places. And you're going to have your trumpet and you're going to have your light. And at my signal, you're going to break the jar so your light is shining and you're going to, you're going to play the trumpet loud. You're going to shout. And we are going to just surround them and absolutely petrify them. On my signal, you're going to blow your trumpets. You're going to smash the jars and you're going to shout for the Lord and Gideon. Oh, if we were to keep reading through the text, you would find that they follow his instructions almost to a T, but they modify the shout because they're a little excited. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. The Midianites absolutely panic. He said, Gideon, the guy with the dream was right. The Lord God is with them. Verse 22 says that the Lord said every man against himself. They start killing each other and then they just hightail it out of there. Because they believe they are surrounded. But Gideon was ready for them to run because Gideon worked in preparation. The people of Ephraim had set a trap at the Jordan River and they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They kill Oreb at a rock and they kill Zeb at a wine press, and that is so poetic. Perhaps you remember the sermon last week, and if you weren't here, where did God first find Gideon? Now he was threshing wheat in a wine press. Where did God reveal himself to Gideon, confirming that this is the living God speaking to him? In a blaze of fire on a rock. This God who has called Gideon, who has showed himself to Gideon, has proven faithful to his word. The Lord God has defeated his enemies just as he promised. 
What in the world does Judges chapter 7 have to teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ and the life of faith? First thing we see is that God removes our reasons for boasting. God removes our reasons for boasting. God wants to leave no doubt that he is the one delivering Israel from the Midianites. We saw two reductions to the fighting force. One, okay, it makes some sense until you see just how many people leave. The other is, for our intents and purposes, completely arbitrary. Separate the people by how they drink water, send everyone who drank it one way home, and keep the few who drank it the other way. God tells Gideon why he's doing this. It's not a mystery. Verse 2, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Again and again in the book of Judges, we see this. The other people aren't the problem. God's people are. He doesn't say the Midianites are too many, like we would expect. Because the Israelites are too many. If you go and win with this force, then perhaps the people can think, we're pretty good. We're pretty good at this fighting thing. We're pretty strong. We should do this more often. He reiterates in verse 4, the people are too many. If you go with all these people and you win, even though I'm the reason for that victory, God says, then you're never going to learn your lesson. At the end of this battle, God wants everyone, the Israelites and the Midianites, to know that the Lord God has won this victory decisively. The very things that you will be tempted to boast in, God says, I am getting rid of. The very things you will be tempted to boast in, God gets rid of. Oh, there is great and glorious gospel truth here. Listen to the Apostle Paul telling the Ephesians about the nature of their salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Galatians 6, 14, the apostle Paul says to the church of Galatia, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says the only thing I boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, he says, if anyone in this world has reasons for boasting in their religious heritage, it's me, and I choose not to. I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, in the letter to the church at Corinth, the apostle Paul is helping the church understand the nature of their calling. He's helping them understand who they are. He said, remember who you are, brothers. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. Paul says, remember your calling, brothers. You guys weren't all that. You weren't that impressive. And the reason for that is that God wants the whole world to know that their boast is in him. 
God wants the world to know that your success is not because of you, it's because of him. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Just like the Israelites, we are delivered or saved, as you might say, by God. He does it. And just like Gideon, God will remove every reason for our boasting in ourselves. This is an important point. It's a foundational point. God saves us in a way that does not glorify us, but glorifies him. God saves us in a way that does not glorify us, but glorifies him. In fact, we are delivered by being forgiven. We are delivered by being forgiven. How is Gideon delivered in this story? Well, Gideon is delivered miraculously through military might. Deliverance for Gideon is escaping Midianite oppression. Deliverance for us is final and ultimate. So all those Old Testament stories of deliverance, all the ones we're reading in Judges, going all the way back to the Exodus, they're all pointing to a great and final deliverance, a final deliverance from the great enemy, sin. And Jesus, the true and better Gideon, is the one who wins that victory decisively. And just like the people of Israel, we follow in the victory that he has won. But we receive that victory in the same way the Gideonites, by faith, not in our own power, but in God's. God doesn't deliver us militarily. He delivers us by forgiving us of our sins. We are delivered, not because we're great, but we are delivered by believing something someone else did for us. We are delivered by believing something someone else did for us. As the great Puritan preachers always said, we bring nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. We bring nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. All that stuff that you think makes you savable. What if I told you that's the very obstacle to your salvation? All that stuff that you think makes you so savable and good in God's eyes. What if I said, that stuff is the very stuff that is the obstacle to your salvation. Because God does not save the one who thinks himself healthy. He saves the one who knows himself sick. God does not save the one who thinks himself impressive. He saves the one who knows himself unimpressive. God does not save the one who thinks he can save himself. He saves the one who knows that God alone must save him. God who saves us by forgiving our sins, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ removes all reasons for boasting in ourself. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's not the result of works, lest any man should boast. God removes our reasons for boasting. Second, God builds our faith. So we see two actions in Gideon, broadly speaking. We see a stripping away and we see a building up. That Gideon is being stripped away of the things he would be tempted to trust in. He's being stripped away of his military might and he's being sort of built up by faith in God. God removes the things that we are tempted to put our faith in so that we may put our faith in the right things. God strips Gideon of his fighting force, and then he gives him something better than a fighting force, namely the reassurance of his presence. 
God wants Gideon to know that he's with him. This is the sort of thing he does. He wants you to know that he's with you. In life, God will take away everything you would be tempted to put your faith in if that's what it takes to build your faith in him. This is a sort of pattern we see all throughout the scriptures. God wants you to have a real, tangible, vibrant faith in him. He'll take away the lesser to give you the greater because he's a good all-knowing father. Look what he does for Gideon. He takes in such a way that looks incredibly damaging. But the way, but he's taking not to damage Gideon, he's taking to deliver Gideon. But even in this filling with faith, Gideon has a role to play. Now, not a role of sort of deserving anything or earning anything, but notice what the Lord God says to him. He says, if you are nervous, like if you need a little bit of encouragement, you can have it. It's all yours, but you're going to find it at the camp of the Midianites. Go listen to your enemy. Oh, God knows that as soon as Gideon gets there, he's going to see that the enemy is much, much, much greater than the Israelites. They are like sand on the seashore. You'll find that though they are as vast as the sands on the sea, they are scared to death of you because they know I'm with you. And this leads Gideon to worship. Gideon the idol smasher worships the living God before he goes to battle because he knows that the battle belongs to the Lord. Here's what we need to see. God fills Gideon with faith and moves him to worship before he sends him to battle. God fills Gideon with faith and he moves him to worship before he sends Gideon to battle. Because ultimately, the book of Judges is not a book about war. The book of Judges is a book about idolatry. It's the story of a loving God purging his people from the idols that destroy them. God fills Gideon with faith after he strips him of all his worldly comforts to send him into battle to deliver his people. Friend, God may seem like he's beating you down with all the stuff that's wrong in your life. Well, have you considered that maybe he is? Here's what I mean. Because maybe instead of putting your faith in comfort, Jesus is a better place for your faith. Maybe instead of putting your faith in this image of a perfect family, Jesus is a stronger foundation for your life. Maybe instead of finding your value in your job, Jesus is a better place to find your value. Maybe you're in that scary phase this morning, phase this morning of things being stripped away. Or maybe you're in that exciting phase of knowing the power and presence of God. Maybe you're in the tearing down phase and maybe you're in the building up phase, but don't get too comfortable wherever you are because this is a dynamic process. God is always inviting us to turn from our false saviors and turn to the real one. He's always leading us away from the things we're tempted to elevate to God-like status and reminding us that he alone is the Lord our God. 
God is always taking lesser things in his own way to give us greater things. God wants you to know that in Christ and by the Spirit, he is with you, for you, and in you. God builds Gideon's faith, but he does it step by step on the way to the Midianite camp. Notice where Gideon has to go to know God's with him. He's got to go to the valley of the shadow of death. He's got to walk right up in the belly of the beast. He can't know the presence of God up on the mountain at a safe distance. Is God with him there? Sure, but does he know it? No. Or will you walk in faith? Gideon must walk to camp to determine the victory will be his. Which poses the question to us, will you stay on the mountain in a safe distance or will you walk in faith and obedience so that God may show himself faithful again? Brother, sister, the very place God shows himself to us is the place we most need him. It's only in obedience where our faith is built. It's only in obedience where our faith is built. When you experience the presence of God, you learn to trust in the power of God. It's an important statement. When you experience the presence of God, you learn to trust in the power of God. No one can do this for you. Um, People can tell you about it. They can tell you stories about this in their life. But it's something you really experience for yourself when you're walking by faith. When you experience the presence of God, you learn to trust in the power of God. I mentioned that this is a dynamic process, that God is stripping away our, our armies so that he will fight for us, to use the Gideon metaphor. And that as you grow as a Christian, I'm learning that when you're going through those stripping phases, they never really get easier, but you learn to know that God's doing something in this. In this pain, in this struggle, in this uncertainty, in this fear, I'm not losing my mind like I was years ago because I know that even through this, God is working. And that somehow in all of this, God is reminding me he's here because he's preparing me for what he has on the other side of it. In the story of Gideon, God removes his armies. He builds his faith and sends him triumphantly into battle. Third thing we see is that God triumphs through us. The Israelites win this battle. They didn't even need 300 men. They win the battle with zero, ultimately. They don't kill anyone. They don't lose anyone. The Midianites turn on themselves. The text says that the Lord set them against one another, and then they run. Surely the Lord has done this. Now, as we land this plane, we are blatantly clear about what we've been saying the whole time. We learn something of the gospel according to Gideon in this passage. Having removed our reasons for boasting, God has saved us by grace through faith, lest any man should boast. He has sent his spirit to dwell in us as a guarantee of his presence with us. He builds our faith as we obey him, and he sends us out into the world, into battle. We could even say, but our battle is not like Gideon's battle. It's a different battle. In fact, I've spent a lot of time in Ephesians recently, so I'm going there a lot, just 
mentally. At the end of the letter, okay, Paul begins the letter with this great greeting and these great prayers, and he reminds of all this gospel truth in chapters two and three. In chapters four and five, he has all sorts of instructions for how to live as citizens, how to live in their homes. And then at the very end of the letter, he has this uh, extended discourse about the, the shield of faith, right? The helmet of faith, the, 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 uh, the stuff that armies, the, the armor of faith, that's the word I was looking for for 15 seconds in my head. The armor of faith. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Remember, these are Paul's last words to the church at Ephesus. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit. You are going to war, Paul tells the Ephesians. But your weapons are not the weapons of the world. Your weapons are truth. Your weapons are righteousness. Your weapons are faith. Your weapons are prayer. You go forward not to conquer. You go forward with the gospel of peace. Just like Gideon, we have a real enemy who does battle with us every day. We just can't see him. But like Gideon, this enemy is great. He's powerful. Paul calls him the, the cosmic forces of evil, right? Like Gideon, we feel outnumbered, the stakes are high, but like Gideon, we triumph in weakness, boasting in God's strength and not our own. Uh, worship team, you guys can come on up. We trust not in our own power, but in God's knowing that he is trustworthy, fully convinced that he's able to keep his promise to us, fully convinced that by faith we will defeat this enemy. By faith, Jesus has defeated this enemy for us, and we move forward triumphantly with him, not in strength, but in weakness. We go forth and in weakness and spiritual power that flows from the steadfast knowledge that the Lord God is with us. This is the gospel according to Gideon. God removes our reasons for boasting. He builds our faith in him and he triumphs through us. He saves you and he keeps on saving you by grace through faith. He proves himself faithful in our lives over and over again. And this God will triumph through us. This is the gospel according to Gideon. Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning that we are tempted to trust in so many things for our deliverance and salvation. We are tempted to trust in our own brains, our own skills, our own ability to just kind of figure things out. 
But Lord, you, you call us to come to you with our weakness, to come to you with our sin. Lord, the very things that we see as the things that are like, make us savable, you say, no, those, those can't save you. And Lord, we trust that you're faithful to show us those things in our lives. We trust that you'll show us those things and places we go for saving that just can't save us. And in your goodness and grace, you do what you have to do to show us that. So help us, Lord, turn not to the strength of our own might, of our own will, of our own hands. Help us not turn to the sincerity of our religion. Help us not turn to our own morality, but help us turn to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Help us turn to the one who is fully able to save us. The one who took our sin on Himself, who defeated the forces with which we fight on His cross at Golgotha. And Lord, build our faith in Him. Build our faith in You. Help us be people who know you're with us and may that lead us to worship. May we face each day knowing that all kinds of struggle awaits. Struggle that we expect and struggle that we never saw coming. But in all of that struggle, Lord, you are there. You are present. You are with us and the victory is yours. Help us trust you, Lord. Help us, like Gideon, grow in our faith as we take small steps of obedience. Lord, we believe. Oh, help our unbelief. In the name of Jesus, who has saved us, we pray. Amen.